and Tom Talk Teaching, a podcast about all things education presented by Emma Thayer and Tom Breeze. Episode 16, Easter Special 2021. Welcome back everyone. We have made it to another light episode. I'm finding more and more these days that these light episodes are like life buoys on the horizon that I'm swimming towards as we go through the terms. And we were just talking before we hit the record button, Tom, weren't we, that this time last year when we were recording our Easter episode, you were in your car. I was in my car with one of those commentary microphones like they use, you know, the ones on a stick, trying not to be too suspicious to people going past. Is that what they wear at uh, sporting events? You've got one of yeah, those funny hats like, on and Yeah, like John Moxon in his sheepskin uh, uh, coat, you know, with that brown yeah. microphone you hold right up to your, to your lips because it cuts all the background noise. Yeah, I've got one of those, which is, was a great COVID-19 gear purchase, actually, because it allows me to, to record, you know. <laughs> but I do look a bit strange in the car in the dark with it. My neighbour was looking at me a bit funny, I remember. And of course, that was the infamous episode where we got the giggles about cake finds. We did, cake (laughs) finds. Yes, yes. It was a good episode, that actually. It was. We enjoyed it. And many other people have told us that they have too. So um, (laughs) although we've just reflected that because we are, we're trying to get this in the can in advance. (laughs) So we're actually, we're actually recording this. We're still mid-term, aren't we? Yeah. (laughs) We're, so we're tired. So if we sound tired and a bit frazzled, and if the um, if the content is less light than uh, it would normally be for these light episodes, then we apologise in advance yeah. as you're hopefully chomping on your Easter eggs or whatever you fancy during your Easter yeah. break. Easter eggs we are apologize. over the horizon and we're feeling heavy today, aren't we? Yeah, a little bit heavy, but we, uh, we, we just did some prepping and we've decided that uh, the order will go from heavy to light. So hopefully yeah. there'll be laughter ensuing as we <laughs> get to the point. end. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. oh, so we didn't decide who's going to go first, Tom. Do you want to go first or shall um, I? Because you're going to go last. I think when we get to the light stuff, you're going last. So shall we make it me first? Yeah, yeah, all go the way ahead. through. Um, so we've both agreed to get our heaviest thing out of the way first. It's not it's blog tweets and stories originally, wasn't it? But we've we've both yeah. gone a bit rogue, and we've got all kinds of random in bits of information <laughs> and stuff we've printed out off the internet and all of that. So yeah, it's things, things, and more things. And I think we're ending with tweets, but we're starting heavy and we're ending light. Yeah. So here is my heaviest uh, contribution. And I suppose the idea here, I was thinking when I picked this, it, it, <laughs> I, I do have a suspicion when I start doing this, you're going to be like, why? Why have you done this <laughs> to us, Tom? The idea here, right, just to kind of get my excuses in in advance, is that maybe sometimes when you're on a break from from work, you want to think about some of the bigger questions, some of the bigger, knottier questions. Um, so I, I'm, I've got the, one of the biggest and knottiest ones of all here for us. Uh, oh God, just to have I'm a intrigued. think about. Yeah, I thought you would be. Um, it did start with a tweet, funnily enough. Um, and it, it was from a, a BBC radio producer called Callum May. And it just intrigued me. And I went down a bit of a rabbit hole with it. Um, this tweet came out uh, around about February time. And it simply said this, Merseyside police did an anti-hate crime campaign where they towed a big trailer around with messages on, including being offensive is an offence. This morning, they would like to clarify that being offensive is not in itself an offence, which is one of the more humiliating climb downs you could possibly do, I guess, as a, as a police force. And um, basically what they did, I, I saw the picture of this when I, I clicked a little bit more deeply, Um with very, very good intentions, obviously, they, they were doing a big ad campaign in which they were saying, like, you know, if somebody is is perpetrating hate crime uh, on the LGBTQ community or whoever it may be, um, you know, you, we, we will support you kind of thing. But unfortunately, they in the in the process of producing this poster, which they were towing around on the back of this van, the big kind of slogan in the middle of this poster was being offensive is an offence. And then they had to produce a statement, the opening line of which was, we would like to clarify that being offensive is not in itself an offence. 
um, which which is an interesting one, isn't it? Because I suppose, yeah. I mean, as universities, I know we, we talk a lot about schools, but we obviously teach in a university environment. Schools come under fire for all kinds of things, don't they? You know, teachers are a favourite kind of targets for people who want a quick and easy nasty headline and um, the thing that they tend to come after us in universities about it at the moment particularly I mean apart from fees and value for money and and degrees about silly things and all that kind of thing the really big one is freedom of speech isn't it um, and it, it's a really interesting one to kind of stop maybe when you are on a bit of a break and think okay let's just let's just check <laughs> let's just check my compass here where are we on the kind of freedom of speechometer um, am mm. I sort of veering off in any bad directions and it's very likely i think that our school colleagues might have a different sort of set of boundaries there compared with those of us who are in universities um and it just got me thinking and actually one of the links that was posted underneath i mean and clearly there were a lot of people that were very angry with this police force because uh, either because they had they misstated the law and they felt they were being kind of draconian and dystopian or on the other hand they were saying right you've done an awful lot of damage here to various communities who were occasionally the the target of hate because you've really messed up here and now people are not going to want to want to kind of report things but one of the links was to a judgment um which i read in its entirety actually it's about 60 pages long um it was worth a read quite a controversial judgment um and i'm going to i'm going to kind of set the boundaries here straight away and say this was this was a judgment in relation to um some fairly rude and offensive tweets that were sent by a person um and it's to do with the kind of debate around gender identity and particularly kind of you know trans community and all that kind of thing and i'm absolutely going to state at this point that, that we we know that this is a debate that we should be having at some point on the podcast and our easter light episode probably isn't it um mm. to be having a, a deep discussion about that which is why i'm, I'm going to park that whole kind of interesting debate but basically there was a court case in which somebody had had tweeted some pretty offensive things out into the world and a member of the trans community had been offended by this and had reported it to the police and and um various things had happened and anyway there, there's a whole judgment about it which is interesting in itself the whole news story is interesting in itself actually um the guy who who published the the fairly rude and crass and offensive tweets was vindicated in his right to do so actually in this judgment which i know wow. didn't go down well um with with parts of the trans community um but in in the opening to the judgment before he really got down to business and actually i would recommend reading the whole judgment because it's very interesting the kind of process that this judge goes through kind of um weighing the issues and kind of really getting through the issues it's really interesting but his opening page is a series of quotes um so his opening of his judgment reads as follows in his unpublished introduction to animal farm george orwell wrote if liberty means anything at all it means the right to tell people what they do not want to hear in Regina versus Central Independent Television PLC 1994, Hoffman LJ said, A freedom which is restricted to what judges think to be responsible or in the public interest is no freedom. Freedom means the right to publish things which government and judges, however well motivated, think should not be published. It means the right to say things which right-thinking people regard as dangerous or irresponsible. This freedom is subject only to clearly defined exceptions laid down by common law or statute. Also much quoted are the words of Sedley LJ in Redmond Bait versus the Director of Public Prosecutions 1999. Free speech includes not only the inoffensive, but the irritating, the contentious, the eccentric, the heretical, the unwelcome and the provocative. Freedom only to speak inoffensively is not worth having. And on it goes for about 60 pages and he gets down to business and it is very, very interesting. But it, I think it is probably a good idea sometimes when you're not too tired or too frazzled um, to occasionally perhaps raise your head and just kind of work out where you are in relation to that and where the boundaries are. And it, it's an interesting one to just occasionally have on your radar and think about. So, I mean, I, clearly that was a completely enormous uh, mess up by this particular police force, um, you know, towing a post around saying being offensive is an offence. 
Um, clearly, there is hate crime and there are criminal offences related to inciting hatred of, of, you know, racism and various other protected characteristics. Um, but it's occasionally interesting to read some of these things and just have a little think, um, particularly, I think, those of us who work in universities who are in a particularly interesting place. Oh, Tom. <laughs> yeah. My palms are a bit sweaty. I thought and they would be, Anna. Yeah, sorry. <laughs> no, it's fine. It's um, it's uncanny, really, because my first entry um, is something that got me thinking a lot as well. Um, for a lot of similar reasons, not that it's exactly the same in its content, but it, it does deal with some of those really big questions about, you know, freedom of speech, but also kind of how we set parameters around things, what kind of restrictions we put on people's liberty in a workplace such as a, a, an education establishment. And we are in an interesting position because we, as you said, we we are officially in a, a higher education institution, but we work directly with schools and we train teachers. And yeah, sometimes <laughs> that line is difficult to tread. And that's all I'm going to say, because as you say, it needs, it needs a much longer, harder, deeper conversation. Many, in fact. And I think that if there's anything that I've learnt during this pandemic, maybe because there's been more time to stop and ponder some of these really difficult and and also because the pandemic has kind of brought to the fore things that were always there and problematic, but maybe have been exacerbated by or just we've got more time to think about and to talk about them because we're all sort of in a lockdown situation with more time on our hands. I don't know. But um, yes, the thing that I'm finding difficult, and again, I'm, I'm just going to be honest and open, open about it on our podcast, um, because that is our privilege. And, um, and it's that I really don't have a straight answer on some of the things that I'm about to raise now. So to give you some context, um, today is International Women's Day. It's the 8th of March. Um, and I um, I celebrate that day and I'm going to, in fact, read a piece um, in my middle section that's celebrating that day. But the podcast that I'm going to share some extracts from today um, is a podcast that's been out for a long time now. And I'm really glad I found it. It's actually the Globe, uh, the Globe Theatre podcast, which is in its seventh season. Um, and it's called Hashtag Such Stuff Podcast, the Shakespeare's Globe podcast. And of course, Such such Stuff, if, you're, if you don't know, um, refers to the final lines of Prospero's final speech in The Tempest. Um, we are such stuff as dreams are made on. Um, so it's a great podcast, but um, I didn't know about it until I saw that someone had tweeted about this episode um, just to give you an indication of the podcast, um, this is just direct copy about the podcast. It says, our podcast looks at Shakespeare's transformative impact on the world around us, asking questions about programming, gender, race, social justice and their relationship to Shakespeare. So this episode came out on the 26th of February this year. Um, and February celebrates LGBTQ plus history month. Um, and in this episode, the head of learning at the Globe and former drama teacher, Lucy Cuthbertson, interviews eight former students of hers to find out about their experiences of being LGBTQ plus in school. And the first half of the episode is her interviewing her former pupils. Um, Lucy Cuthbertson, it um, transpires in the episodes, identifies um, as a lesbian. And she um, she talks about that and she talks about her experiences um, of being out and coming out in school. But, um, you know, the the. The pupils talk with uh, mostly fondness of their experiences in drama in that school and it being a safe space um, to be 
uh, sort of grappling with their identity um, at that stage. So the first half is her interviewing them. The second half, um, Lucy talks to somebody somebody called Dr. Ellie Barnes about the work that she does with her charity called Educate and Celebrate. And they do work with schools to ensure they're inclusive environments for everybody. So I would really encourage you to listen to the full episode. It's about an hour long in its entirety, but I really like the way the podcast foregrounds young people's experiences and and how they found it um, sort of experiencing school and dealing with these issues. But what's interesting is that one of the questions that Lucy asks um, during the interview is about uh, teacher trainees. And we're going to listen to a short extract now um, where Lucy is asking her former pupils that if they were to go and be a speaker at a PGCE programme, on an ITE programme, and they were to advise trainee teachers um, about the ways in which they could uh, create a more inclusive environment for their pupils and and just general advice um, in the vein of of everything that she's covered to that point in the podcast episode. Um, And the responses that they give are incredibly perceptive um they are really nuanced and they are very kind of raw i would say and i think um it's best to find out what's needed in the first instance by listening to pupils who understand the issues firsthand so we're going to listen to those now so just to finish off if you were going to go along to a PGCE course, initial teacher training course, and talk to teachers who are in training, who are about to go into schools, what advice would you be giving them about how to create an inclusive school that they're part of? It's about being confident in yourself, about being open as who you are. And then once you have created a place where you feel like you can be who you are and open, then you can look to move that down into the school. And I think that showing kids that it's okay to be who you are first doesn't matter if you're talking about sexuality or whatever I think it's creating that culture first in school and then you'll get from that who needs the support and where and from that you'll get those kids who don't know how to identify themselves as who they are and their sexuality and from that then you can start creating that that support unit that they need because everybody needs a little bit of support doesn't matter who you are because I'm a teacher now and teaching in my school, some teachers don't feel they can necessarily be themselves or give away too much of themselves to students. Some people like really hold back from being who they are at school. But if you are more open about that with kids, then it gets them to understand that there are different people in the world. And I think in our school, people were very open about kind of who they were, which meant that it was OK for us to be like that. And I think you learn so much from your teachers about people rather than just the lessons they're teaching. I would say to continue trying to provide sort of the, the safe spaces. Naturally, students will gravitate to the teachers they feel get them. As long as there's a, the pocket and a, of teachers that are willing to create those spaces, at least there's several different outlets for a student to go to if needed. And maybe to dedicate a bit more time to the history, because I only learned that from, from yourself. There needs to be more more inclusion, feminist movements, gay movements, black history, that there needs to be a, a broader spectrum taught in schools so that nobody is left out and yeah, just to help create the, the safe spaces for the people that, that need it. I think this understanding that gay, homosexuality, uh, LGBTQ people, transgender people especially and non-binary people have always been around. It's not this this new thing that's come into like come into the world these people have always been there there's just been no light shone to recognize that i think what i would have liked was just teachers saying it as just the norm don't step around the subject i think talking about it in just the most frank way you can don't make it so serious that it becomes unapproachable but not skirt around the subject like everyone's going to mess up they are young and they're finding out about these subjects for the first time, often in school. When they're going to say 
maybe clumsy things, or, but a lot of it will just be coming from curiosity. And I think just to give kids straight answers and respect their intelligence, even though they are young, don't hide things and cloak them behind some mysterious, like, this is a hush-hush subject, because then kids are just going to be more and more interested. They're going to find out from bad sources and find out bad information and wrong information. But if you give them a solid, straight-to-it, full of facts and reality education about LGBT issues and people, they're just going to be like, okay. If I was to to be parachuted into a, a um, teacher training course and give my advice about how to support LGBT students and non-LGBT students for that matter, I think I would use the government's coronavirus advice and say, act like you've got it, act like everyone might be. (laughs) Act like everyone might be LGBT. And I think it's it's so much it's about role models and it's about just normalising because I think that everything else in our culture is saying you know, is not necessarily, you know, there's lots of things in the culture that are very, very pro-LGBT, pro-LGBT rights. But I think still, like, all of the narratives, all of the kind of, all of the things that we grow up on are so heteronormative. If you're a teacher and you've got an opportunity to talk to, like, 100 kids a week or more, then be one of the people that's helping to unpack that. Because, and if that's by just referencing history, referencing, and it goes also for other marginalised groups, referencing the, the stories that are relevant to more than just the straight folk. If it's science, talking about scientists and all of that stuff, you know, I just think it has to be kind of, it just has to be in the groundwork of everything, because otherwise we just keep work, walking through life thinking there's one way of being which is so not the case. (laughs) I think we should finish there. That was beautiful. So now we've listened to um, their thoughts. Um, I just wanted to listen to a very, very short additional extract from the interview with Dr. Ellie Barnes as well. And it comes from the end of this interview, the end of the podcast, Um, where Lucy asks if there were students who were within a school and they know that homophobia is still an issue within the school homophobia, biphobia, transphobia what would be your advice to them right now? And we're going to listen to um, Ellie Barnes Dr Ellie Barnes' response to this now Just to finish off if if, if there were school leaders if there were students who are within a school and they they know that homophobia is still an issue in that school. Homophobia, biphobia, transphobia. What what would be your advice to them right now? Oh, wow. I mean, the first thing that we must start with is why are people not safe within your environment? What is happening right now? And let's look at the things for immediate change. Now, I would definitely recommend getting in an outside organisation or I would recommend getting somebody from your staff body trained and then of course having a structured programme. So what training are you laying out each year? Are your policies embedded? Does everyone know about them? Who is doing the work in the curriculum? What can we change in the curriculum? Where can we change it? Where is it needed the most? What's on the walls? Where can young people go for further support? You know, where can staff go? Where can parents go? And you know, and how and who is making the changes? Is it the staff? Is it the young people themselves? You know, we need the young people's voices on this, which is why we have a massive Pride Youth Network. So groups of young people making positive change because they are the benefactors, aren't they, of this? They're receiving this education. Their voice needs to be heard. Okay, and um, I said at the start of my section that this became quite tricky for me because if you listen to the full episode, and we haven't played an extract of this, um, but Ellie Barnes talks about um, how, in fact, she and Lucy talk about how gendered still school environments are. And one of the issues that many of the former pupils talk about, and indeed Ellie and Lucy, is how 
they can't get away from this binary. This binary is pervasive, gendering is pervasive and, and, it, and it's one of the many obstacles to, you know, an inclusive environment and to young people who don't identify as uh, male or female um, and don't stick to that binary. They, they really, they find that challenging. Um, so, and obviously, as I said, it's International Women's Day where we're celebrating women, but I know that also that there are, it's a complicated issue, um, you know, for all the reasons that Tom sort of alluded to that we can't go into in this episode. So I think all I'm going to say is that I'm trying to understand, I'm trying to find a position, but I'm also trying to listen. Um, and I hope that this content has, has given you the opportunity to think about those things too. Marvellous. We're very multimedia today, aren't we? Everything we from are. high court judgments to podcasts. And I'm going to take a slight move up the lightness scale, I suppose. But it's it's interesting, actually, <laughs> how many how many sort of there's a bit of a theme coming through here, because one of the other things people are talking about at the moment in education is this. This idea of decolonizing the curriculum, which I know gets eye rolls from certain quarters, doesn't it? That people think we're mm. getting awfully self-indulgent about some of this stuff. But actually, it's one of those things that once you start getting into thinking about it, it it's interesting. It's actually genuinely very interesting. And I found this article about music, uh, which obviously is my specialist subject um, from a from a music website called Pitchfork, which I hadn't come across before, actually, but apparently is quite well known. It's one of these kind of uh, music review and sort of article websites from America. And actually, uh, it, it gets a bit of a, a bit of a reputation for being a bit pretentious, apparently. I, I also found a really, really funny satirical article from the Onion website in which it describes Pitchfork's chief reviewer as giving the whole of music a rating of 6.8. <laughs> which is well worth the read in itself. I, I briefly considered using that as one of my one of my things. But you can go off and find that for yourself if you like and it's various people have uh, satirized this website but this is an interesting article um which which gets you thinking about music and the nature of music and the sort of the way that western musical kind of nuts and bolts have become very very pervasive uh in the kind mm. of popular music world um and i'll try not to make this too kind of technical um, mm -hmm. But if any of this doesn't make sense, just let me know. I've gone into Geeksville here. Um, the, the headline is Decolonizing Electronic Music Starts With Its Software, which is possibly the least promising headline I've ever read out on one of these light <laughs> episodes. <laughs> no cake finds in here, sorry. But stick with me, because I th personally, I think this is interesting. Um, feel free I'm to tell you. me it's not when we get to the end and that I'm just a music geek. But here we go. In 2004, Kayam Alami was ready to give up on electronic music. No matter how hard he tried, tried he couldn't write melodies that sounded like the music in his head it felt like the software was leading me somewhere that wasn't my intention and i couldn't understand why that was he recalled born in syria to iraqi parents alami had grown up in london playing guitar and drums in punk bands he was exploring arabic music for the first time or at least trying to but the music's distinctive quarter tones were proving difficult to emulate the software simply wasn't made for him Last month, Alami unveiled an ambitious solution to this problem. At the virt virtual incarnation of Berlin's CTM Festival for Experimental Arts, Alami, along with Tero Paviainen and Samuel Diggins of the creative technology studio Counterpoint, introduced Lema and Apotome, two pieces of free software that aim to shatter the hegemony of Western musical thought in electronic production. Lema allows users to explore tuning systems from around the world or create their own, while Apotome offers generative music creation using these diverse tuning systems. They intend to give musicians a blank musical slate rather than nudging them towards any specific musical tradition. Okay, so what is he on about? Mm -hmm. What is Tom on about here? <laughs> Moving on to some explanatory bits. Music carries its own local characteristics the world over. A song might sound Turkish, Indian, Irish or Cuban, principally because of its distinct timbre, rhythm and tuning. 
While diverse rhythms and timbres, which is the characteristic tone of an instrument, are relatively easy to approximate in production software, tuning is another story. A tuning system is a collection of pitches from which musical scales and modes are derived, and the subject has attracted some of history's greatest minds to expound on the mysterious relationship between music, mathematics and metaphysics. Tuning is one of the most fundamental elements of music making, Alami says, yet it is also one of the least understood. Most electronic music tools, along with the guitar, the piano and wind instruments, are set by default to a tuning system called Equal Temperament, which is the foundation of most Western classical music from the past two centuries. This does not allow for microtonality, the notes between a standard piano's keys, which is commonly used in musical traditions outside of Europe. Through his research, Alami discovered that it had been possible to explore microtonality using MIDI, the language of electronic music tools, since 1992, but software developers had not implemented functions to make microtonal tunings intuitive to use. As one product manager of a popular music notation program told him, they simply didn't believe that there was a market for such features. Alami expresses a a keen sense of injustice about the young global musicians struggling to make digital sounds that feel authentically local. It's not that the music that they make will sound more Western, but it's forced into an unnatural rigidity, Alami says. The music stops being in tune with itself. A lot of the culture will be gone. It's like cooking without your local spices or speaking without your local accent. For me, that's a remnant of a colonial supremacist paradigm. The music is colonised in some way. This was certainly the experience of Kenyan producer Slickback, one of the musicians invited to test drive Apatome. I find Ableton, which is a a well-known piece of music software, pushes me towards following the beat grid, he said. Everything sounds somehow Western, very mechanical, not organic, like the rough tones and raw drums I heard growing up in Nairobi. Even as I try to break away from the loops and the one, two, three, four drive of these music tools, I always end up back there somehow. Unassuming as they may seem, these technologies are far from neutral. Like social media platforms, dating apps and all data-driven algorithms, music production tools have the unconscious biases of their creators baked into their architecture. If a musician opens a new composition and they're given a 4-4 beat and equal-tempered tuning by default, it's implied that other musical systems do not exist, or at least that they are of less value. Seeing Lamer and Apatome in action during CTM's digital showcases last month was far from an academic exercise in post-colonial theory. There was the thrill of musicians witnessing their horizons broadening right before our eyes. Across five performances, artists from around the world used the software to play sets ranging from austere experimentalism to raucous dance tracks. Indonesian producer Wahono adopted the tuning systems of wind and reed instruments from Sumatra and Java, while Tunisian producer Dina Abdul-Wahid called on the tunings of beloved Arabic songs from her childhood. Leima has already taught Abdul Wahid lessons about Arabic music that she never knew she needed. Before this project, I didn't know major and minor scales were Western, said the Tunisian producer. I thought they were simply melodies and I didn't realise there was an alternative. The programmes allowed her to musically access something within herself, to address an absence she'd long felt but never been able to articulate. I'd always felt oppressed by my melodic phrases in Ableton. I didn't want to say my brain is wired to Arabic scales because I'm an Arab, but I found it much more logical to go from one note to another in Lema and Apatome. They brought me close to something familiar, closer to what I truly want to express. And that, while a bit heavy and geeky and theoretically musicy, is an interesting one because loads of people in music education Twitter were looking at that going, I had not given that a moment's thought. Wow. Western scales, you know, everywhere, pop music, you know, you get yourself into, I mean, they talk about Ableton, but we shouldn't just sort of um, single them out. You know, you get into Cubase or Ableton or GarageBand or Mm. Logic or Sibelius or whatever, and you're presented with the semitones and tones of the Western scale. Yeah. Yeah baked in really interesting i guess not everyone's a music geek um, but it would be interesting to really think like you know some stuff is really obvious where you where you kind of decolonization needs to start but yeah. sometimes it's a little bit difficult to see like that that's that's yeah um it's stuff like that that it it really does need conversations with uh, not just people within that 
discipline, but but prof- professionals and performers in the field from different international locations, like that has only come to the fore through a more collaborative, wider conversation and reflection on those tools, hasn't it? Mm. So... Yeah, and that's so much more interesting. I mean, you can see why people get a bit sort of eye-rolly about it if they think it's just, oh, I better I better check how many black faces and white faces I've got, you know. Yes. In my skin. It's so much more interesting than that, you know. And I mean, I, t- I totally get all the kind of theory and, and stuff behind there. And I, I totally know that electronic music could very easily have had microtonal tunings way, way back. Um, but yeah, it's when you start really sitting down and thinking about stuff like that, that it does get very, very interesting. And you do realise that stuff that kind of makes sense to us doesn't necessarily make sense to everybody. And, and it's it's tricky to get that stuff out in the open. Mm. And that's why I, I, I mean, yesterday I read an interesting article in The Times about um, something that TCM um, have been doing, have been fighting back against this whole cancel culture they there was a lot of pressure to remove some really sort of politically correct and outdated uh films Ah, from their billing i don't know whether you saw this but one of them was gone with the wind Um, another was breakfast at tiffany's another was my fair lady and what they've decided to do instead of just cancelling them from their billing from their programming is to um contextualize and there was just an interesting phrase in this times article it was like i'd rather not i'd rather avoid this this oversimplification of cancel culture like we need to contextualize challenge converse about it was just really well put and i'm, mm. I'm paraphrasing it but what they're doing is they're they're showing the movies and then they're reflecting on them in a 21st century context and talking about you know why they were the way they were when they were first produced and I just think that that approach it, albeit a longer road I think that's possibly the way to, I mean you know you, you can't apply that rule to everything but I want to understand before deciding to move away from certain texts or well you know, yeah. content I think I don't think you have to go far, do you, to discover kind of situations where if something is kind of banned or shoved underground, it becomes very attractive to yeah. someone who wants to stick one in the eye of the establishment and actually yeah. far more healthy to kind of have a, a space in which you can really kind of unwrap and unpack this stuff. And of course, that's what we're for, isn't it? This going all the way back to my first thing basically what i'm saying is is that is what we are for um but that's not an easy easy role to have well i'm just going to very very briefly just double back a second and go back to a tiny other extract from that podcast just really short one because i think one of these students one of these highly perceptive students says something really interesting in this interview so Lucy, the interviewer, says, um, you know, did you see yourself reflect yourself reflected in lessons in the curriculum outside of drama where you felt safe? And she's talking there about, you know, LGBTQ representation in the curriculum. And this student says it's important to have representation, partly because having representation will force you as a teacher to have to think about things in a more complicated way. If you're not gay or trans or bisexual, if you're not LGBTQ, BTQ, then there's just going to be a certain ingrained pattern of thinking that you might not even be aware of um, that can can feel quite excluding. And then he goes on to say, um, it's more that if you have a curriculum that includes representation, you're going to be forced to think about your own ingrained thinking and complicate your thinking a bit more. And I thought that was just highly perceptive because we often talk about, you know, making sure that we're we're representing things so the pupils feel that they can see themselves in the curriculum and they can see diversity and inclusion and representation in the curriculum but I just like the way he's positioned it in a way that you know the teachers perceptions and biases is be are being challenged and complicated Okay, yeah. So that's my my medium heavy, little bit geeky. Yeah. Um, yeah. What have you got in the in the medium heavy side of things? 
Well, as I said, um, it is International Women's Day yeah. today. When we're recording this, we should uh, <laughs> yeah. emphasize. Yes. <laughs> Happy yeah, International Women's Day for about a month ago. <laughs> so, yes, it's the 8th of March today. Um, it's International Women's Day. Um, and the theme is Women in Leadership, Achieving an Equal Future in a COVID-19 World. Um, and I just... I, I, I I've got a lovely gift actually that I was given um, from my other half for Christmas <laughs> called Outspoken. I don't know whether he was trying to tell me something um, by somebody <laughs> called Deborah, <laughs> somebody called Deborah Coughlin, Coughlin. Um, and it's 50 speeches by incredible women um, from, I never know whether I say this right, but I think it's Boudicca to Michelle Obama. Um, and actually, it, um, it's nice, this book, because it's full of these speeches, but they were actually performed. So the book is inspired by a show that was created by uh, Deborah Cotlin um, with my all-women performance group, Gaggle. Um, and I'm going to read uh, a speech from um, this book that I'm sure many of our listeners will be familiar with, although some won't be. Um, and this comes from um, a collection of essays that are actually based on a series of lectures that Virginia Woolf delivered at Cambridge University. Um, and fans of Woolf, and I'm just reading from the book now, fans of Woolf will know this quote. And the quote is, a woman must have money and a room of her own if she is to write fiction. Fans of Wolf will know this quote comes from an essay titled A Room of One's Own. So in introducing this speech, the author says, many of us will be able to see ourselves in Wolf's words. Lovers of cat memes will understand Wolf's love of cheeky Persian cats. But all of us who have experienced painful self-doubt in our, in our self-expression can relate to her as well. And that's definitely me. <laughs> the fear of rejection, if we are truly ourselves, you will recognise the battle Wolf has with her own inner good girl, the angel in the house. And then it goes into the extract um, from this essay. So I'm going to start it now. Here goes. To tell you my story, it is a simple one. You've only got to figure to yourself a girl in a bedroom with a pen in her hand. She had only to move that pen from left to right from 10 o'clock to 1. Then it occurred to her to do what is simple and cheap enough after all, to slip a few of those pages into an envelope, fix a penny stamp to the corner and drop the envelope into the red box at the corner. It was thus that I became a journalist and my effort was rewarded on the first day of the following month, a very glorious day it was for me, by a letter from an editor containing a cheque for £1, 10 shillings and sixpence. But to show you how little I deserved to be called a professional woman, how little I know of the struggles and difficulties of such lives, I will have to admit that instead of spending that sum upon bread and butter, rent, shoes and stockings or butcher's bills, I went out and bought a cat, a beautiful cat, a Persian cat, which very soon involved me in bitter disputes with my neighbours. What could be easier than to write articles and to buy Persian cats with the profits? But wait a moment. Articles have to be about something. Mine, I seem to remember, was about a novel by a famous man. And while I was writing this review, I discovered that if I were going to review books, I should need to do battle with a certain phantom. And the phantom was a woman. And when I came to know her better, I called her after the heroine of a famous poem, The Angel in the House. It was she who used to come between me and my paper when I was writing reviews. It was she who bothered me and wasted my time and so tormented me that at last I killed her. You who come of a younger and happier generation may not have heard of her. You may not know what I mean by the angel in the house. I will describe her as shortly as I can. She was intensely sympathetic. She was immensely charming. She was utterly unselfish. She excelled in the difficult arts of family. She sacrificed herself daily. If there was chicken, she took the leg. If there was a draught, she sat in it. In short, she was so constituted that she never had a mind or a wish of her own, but preferred to sympathise always with the minds and wishes of others. Above all, I need not say it, she was pure. Her purity was supposed to be her chief beauty, her blushes, her great grace. In those days, every house had its angel. 
and when I came to write, I encountered her with the very first words. The shadow of her wings fell on my page. I heard the rustling of her skirts in the room. Directly, I took my pen in hand to review that novel by a famous man. She slipped behind me and whispered, My dear, you are a young woman. You're writing about a book that has been written by a man. Be sympathetic, be tender, flatter, deceive, use all the arts and wiles of our sex. Never let anybody guess that you have a mind of your own. Above all, be pure. And she made as if to guide my pen. I now record the one act for which I take some credit to myself, though the credit rightly belongs to some excellent ancestors of mine who left me a certain sum of money so that it was not necessary for me to depend solely on my charm for for my living. I turned upon her and caught her by her throat. I did my best to kill her. My excuse, if I were to be had up in a court of law, would be that I acted in self-defence. Had I not killed her, she would have killed me. She would have plucked the heart out of my writing. And that's it. Love it. I really love it. I really love it because it's not just, um, you know, it's it's not just a straightforward sort of uh, man-hating <laughs> piece. Um, it's, it, it really resonated with me when it comes to imposter syndrome. Um, and I think we've all got a version of maybe the angel in the house that's kind of haunting us when we're trying to achieve something um and it's that negative voice that sometimes can can really stop us from doing what we want to do and and i really liked that that sort of that message that comes through that maybe we just ought to kill <laughs> that yeah. negative voice yeah i think so and you definitely don't have to be a woman to have one of those on your shoulder <laughs> Absolutely. So I dedicate that to um to it's about leadership this International Women's Day. So all the kind of great female leaders and all the great leaders really, humans in my life that inspired me. Thank you. Um and I dedicate that to you. And now it's over to you, Tom, and hopefully we're gonna get a bit more light. <laughs> <laughs> well I was gonna say actually we should probably at this point give a shout out to our own fine institution because you know, I, I've often noticed this. You go right to the top, chair of governors, chancellor, vice chancellor, all women. Dean of our school, deputy dean, mm. program director, my line manager. Mm-hmm. They're all women. Yeah, I, I, I did exactly stuff. the same reflection, particularly when I was thinking about my BA years, when I was training to be a teacher, my, my program leader at that stage was a woman. Mm. The deputy dean of teaching and leadership was a woman. Yeah, so, so actually in, in the education world, you will often find... I don't know. I'm not going to ever want to suggest that the education world is, you know, <laughs> massively far ahead of the rest of the world. But you will find a lot of women in, in positions of power in education. Well, I mean, you find a lot of women in education, don't you? Full stop, yes. uh, which we've talked about yeah. before. But yeah, and it's no bad thing, I don't think. I, yeah. I'd, Say I from yeah. my lofty position at the bottom of the pile. <laughs> Well, it's, it's again, it's a naughty one, isn't it? Do you know, my friend, I'm going to say this on this episode, and I might have said it on a previous episode, but back when you were talking earlier on, it reminded mm. me of something that one of my great female friends, Becky Brynoff, who I've mentioned many times in this podcast, has said. She says that diversity is something that you can see or you can count. Inclusion is something that you can feel. Um and and uh, I think that's definitely something to aspire to, and and maybe times with you know we can have all the we can have all the quotas in the world, but if you don't feel like you are included in that workspace and that your representation, you know, that you're truly there is an, an inclusive environment, then um, it's in vain. Yeah, nothing worse than working in a place that doesn't feel like it's got some meritocratic tendencies. Yes. Having said that, I'm gonna I'm gonna uh, possibly get myself in trouble now. This is where I make sure I will never ascend beyond my position at the bottom of the heap with my tweet or my Twitter okay. account uh, offering. Um, now we have mentioned in the past, haven't we, that uh, we're quite good fans. I think the education community in general are quite fans uh, fans of that Twitter account called SLT Newbie, yeah, uh, which we've mentioned before, which is a sort of parody account of one of those members of the senior leadership team you know newly appointed very shiny very ambitious utterly ruthless 
completely clueless um, and, and absolutely poisonous. And and as it says in their Twitter bio, something like, you know, I'm a parody account, but you have worked with me. <laughs> and I think, yes, we have. We really have. I, I'm not, I, I'm go- I've discovered there is a university equivalent. Oh. Um, I've been talking about universities quite a lot in this session. We've gone a bit a bit self-referential in this light episode, haven't we? We've got <laughs> yeah. a university equivalent. And um, I, I'm going to say, and then I'm going to cover my backside endlessly, it's called associate deans. Um, now, I know we have people at associate dean level and above who listen to this podcast. And I'm sure <laughs> I would say... Disclaimer that the, alert. Yeah, disclaimer alert. We love all of you. Um, but actually, the, some of the tweets from there, they're more just the kind of generalised kind kind of stuff that you get from above you know whether that's from associate deans or you know hr or various bits of the university <laughs> that send you <laughs> emails <laughs> like that so yeah. associate deans you know this is not aimed at you this is just a general scattergun volley aimed around me in such a way that my career will be severely stunted <laughs> As usual. <laughs> so here we go. I've only got a couple of them I'm going to read from there. Um, I, I particularly Brilliant. like what this recent one, um, which reads as follows. Please come to our Zoom workshop, Assessing Assessment, Theories on Designing Protocols for Measures Evaluating Instrument Design Rubrics. <laughs> We've all been to those workshops. <laughs> we really I have. I really wanted to mention. I, I, I can't. I can't do it. I can't mention it. No. But yeah, we've all been to those workshops. So yes, this one, assessing assessment, <laughs> theories on designing protocols for measures, evaluating instrument design rubrics. Hey, if that's your thing, who's to judge, eh? <laughs> it sounds so sexy to use a Dr. Louisa Allen Walker phrase. Yeah, it does, doesn't it? But yeah, we've, we've, we've been to these workshops, haven't we? We've been. Uh, and I like this one as well. Um, we noticed on your last doodle poll that you had lots of availability across the potential time slots. So we've assigned you to another committee. Congratulations. Oh, gosh. Oh, <laughs> now, this is where university world does differ slightly from school world, doesn't it? Because in school world, you're absolutely, you know, your timetable is is rammed with lessons. And in university, yeah. it's very different. Things are a lot more fluid. You have a lot of more different responsibilities across different timescales. And you'd be lying if you said there wasn't sometimes a little bit of ducking and diving on the availability front so as to kind mm. of preserve time for those things that, that need doing um, but we'll get pushed out by the day-to-day sort of meetings and all that kind of thing. And we've all done a bit of obfuscation on the old availability front, I think. Yes, it's uh, about putting some in very important <laughs> blocks in your calendar that <laughs> mm. <Yes. laughs> that show you as unavailable. Yeah. <laughs> you can come up with some ideas about what you might put as titles in those blocks. Yeah, I also like this one, um, just to give a third and final one. Yes, we've cut the history department. We'll, be re- we'll bring it back in 30 years when there's new material available. <laughs> And the next episode of Emma and Tom's podcast will be presented by somebody oh else. Oh my gosh. <laughs> Just uh, keep an eye on the post. You're, yeah, uh, keep an eye on my emails. P45 is... Uh... <laughs> gonna, my next calendar invitation will be coming direct from HR. <laughs> But, you know, it's it's a a window on a world which is a slightly different world to the school world. But uh, we love it all the same. We do. We were talking about, you know, making sure that we don't censor. (laughs) (laughs) And I think comedy has a real place, doesn't it, Uh, in in trying to kind of get some of those things that we all know to be true out with a healthy dose uh, of comedy. Yeah, I'm sure it happens to associate deans as well. Oh, I'm sure. I I think anybody's fair game when it comes to comedy. Yes, right. Definitely. There you go. So that's me done. Over to you. I like it. While I get it. sacked in the background. Well, I mean, hopefully I will um, redeem us with something that's... Um, quick. <laughs> quick and absolutely do lally. So I'm just going to start this off with a question, Tom. Have you got anything culinary wise that is an absolute no-no faux pas red line you know you would just be disgusted to your core if you saw for example anybody putting marmite on their toast oh i like to think i'm a fairly easygoing tolerant kind of person <laughs> <laughs> You're just trying to redeem yourself now, aren't you? 
There's a whole back catalogue of episodes that would suggest otherwise. (laughs) Well, I was going to say, you share an office with me in non-COVID times and you know I am definitely not an easygoing, tolerant kind of person. And there's also a filing cabinet in the office of my own old school with dents up to the height that I could kick, which also attests to the fact that I'm not an easygoing, tolerant kind of person. Um, Let me think. Um... No, I can't think of anything off the top of my head. There probably is something. Um, yeah. But no, well, not off the top of my head. I'm a pineapple on pizza. God, that's a bit of a bit of a no-no for me. Yeah, that's a funny one. I, I like, I'm partial to pineapple on pizza, but my other half's got this theory that if you order pineapple on pizza, then you get your, somehow your pizza is sabotaged. And I can't say I've ever had a perfect pineapple pizza from Domino's and it's always mm. underdone or a bit soggy. And he thinks that it's because it's, it's them getting their own back it's when people sign. choose pineapple on pizza. Yeah. Well, I'll get to the point then. All so, right. <laughs> Weetabix. Um, Weetabix put out a tweet at the start of February of 2021. Why should bread have all the fun when there's Weetabix, question mark, serving up Heinz beans on Bix for breakfast with a twist? And then there's a picture of dry Weetabix, two of them, with a healthy portion of baked beans all over the top. Hmm. So, well, you how, know, how do you are, feel about that one? We're, as I said, we're a safe space to discuss things that would otherwise be found offensive and unacceptable in society. Uh, <laughs> so. <laughs> well, what I liked about this was when I looked at the comments that came out, I mean, everybody and anybody who's got a business jumped on the bandwagon with this and saw it as an opportunity for some lighthearted promo. So it went viral, this tweet. <laughs> Um, so we've got like the first one I can see is from the Royal Exchange Theatre, funnily enough, saying we love a bit of creative experimentation, but this has got our heads spinning. Um, we've got Christian Aid who tweeted an, a, a quote from Matthew 7, 9. Is there anyone among you who, if your child asks for bread, will give dot 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 this question mark? <laughs> Um, and then we've got some other companies jumping on the bandwagon. So Lidl, Lidl GB, mm-hmm. baby, you okay? You've hardly touched your Weetabix and beans, exclamation mark. <laughs> and then Weetabix responds, just about to tuck in, babes. Question is, spoon or knife and fork, question mark. <laughs> and then Nando's jumps on the bandwagon. You okay, hun, question mark. DMs are open if you need to talk. <laughs> Wow. <laughs> and then uh, Toblerone jumps on the bandwagon. Um, oh, hang on. No, KFC, first of all. KFC, let's set aside our differences to prosecute this under the Geneva Convention. <laughs> and then Toblerone, we're from Switzerland, so we're staying out of this. <laughs> So I highly recommend going and having a look at the absolute joy and wonder that is the the chat thread that ensued from that one tweet and that picture of baked beans on top of Weetabix. Oh, they do have some fun sometimes. There was that museum that instigated a competition as to who had like the... I don't know, the most amazing duck or something? Or was it sheep? I can't remember, but all these museums were pitching in with, with hilarious oh, pictures wow. from their collection, you know, and bits of artefacts and all of that. Yeah, it can be fun sometimes. <laughs> oh, so fun. Just top quality banter. And for those of you who are old enough to remember, it just reminded me, do you remember that advert when we were kids? Um, it was advertising like a child's kitchen, like a toy kitchen. And in the advert, a, a, a young child, like a toddler, she serves up some Swiss roll with baked beans on the top right no I don't remember this <laughs> oh gosh I can't I just remember it's some kind of Fisher Price thing anyway you might want to chop that out of the air bit. but uh, yeah so you can see that both Tom and I are now very much in need of a break uh, yeah <laughs> Um, we hope that you are having a very well-deserved one and we hope that's given you some food for thought we hope we haven't offended anybody um, particularly with the beans on the Weetabix ofs yeah Yeah, forget the gender identity debate (laughs) decolonising the music software it's the beans on Weetabix that's going to get us the uh, negative reviews the sack (laughs) <laughs> yeah. Uh, so I guess the last thing to say is um, good luck Tom with the edit on that thanks 
<laughs> and uh, best of luck to everybody out there. We know that teaching times at the moment, there are a lot of schools that have um, started to go back by now face to face. So um, we hope we're all, you're all safe and well. Um, we hope things are going smoothly. Um, and we'll be back in your ears with the usual uh, back to normal <laughs> content in two yes. weeks time. Mm, happy Easter. Happy Easter, everyone. You've been listening to Emma and Tom Talk Teaching, a podcast about all things education, presented by Emma Thayer and Tom Breeze. There were no special guests in this episode, but we hope you enjoyed the weird and wonderful mixture of things we culled off the internet for your interest and enjoyment. We'll be back to normal service next time. Podcast artwork is by Beth Blanford and the music is by Cameron Stewart. We'll be back in your ears in a fortnight with something else interesting. Until then, take care and enjoy teaching. <laughs>